Pastor John will be preaching this morning from Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 20. I invite you to follow along as I read. Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, always and for everything giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. One of the ways to describe the Christian life is to say that it's the living of many paradoxes. Things that just don't make sense in our experience. As far as we can see with our limited perspective. Two things that we're called to do in Scripture that we can't seem to put together. And yet one of the marks of a Christian is that we've walked with God long enough to know His goodness and his wisdom and his power so that we know that at root they must be one if the scriptures commend them to us and that someday when we no longer look through a glass darkly our experience and his word will unite and be harmonious let me illustrate from the apostle paul what i mean by the paradoxes that we are called to live paul described his own life as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. That's what I mean by paradoxes we must live. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How do you do that? If you're always rejoicing, then... Where is there room for sorrow? Is there something like sorrowful joy or joyful sorrow? You bet there is. Most of you have tasted it. He said, having nothing, yet possessing all things. You remember Martin Luther's essay, um, that I quoted on Reformation Sunday at the end of October called The Freedom of a Christian. Luther captures this paradox beautifully. I hope you all get it eventually and read it. Forty pages. Listen to these two sentences. Paul said, having nothing yet possessing everything. Luther said, the Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And the Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And then he wrote 40 pages to explain the Christian life on the basis of those two sentences. In other words, when, we, when you get adopted into the royal family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, some of the paradoxes that stamped the Son in His earthly life begin to stamp your life as well. 
having nothing, yet possessing everything. Lord of all and subject as a servant to all. Here's another place where Paul talks about his uh, paradoxes. He said, the time has grown short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. A paradoxical life we must live. If we are husbands, we will love our wives with the intensity and firmness and faithfulness and sacrificial love with which the Son loved the church. And in a sense, as if we had no wife at all. If we are grieving, we will grieve as though there were no tragedy. If we are doing business with the world, we will do that business as though we had no dealings with the world. The paradoxes of the Christian life are many and profound It is not a simple thing to live the Christian life. And when I was looking at this text in August, pondering it as a Thanksgiving Sunday text, I saw a paradox. Let's read it again. You look for it. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Always and for everything. Giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. On the one hand, it says, watch carefully, be alert, be vigilant, apply wisdom, redeem the time, don't miss an opportunity, the days are evil, the opposition is great, be wise as serpents, understand what the will of the Lord is, don't wreck your mental powers with alcohol. I call that urgency. Wouldn't you call that urgency? It's like a platoon leader talking to his unit just before they go into battle. And there's a tension in the air and the hearts are beating faster. And even if you love the battle, your palms are getting sweaty. Watch out. Be alert. Know your enemy. Know your God. Take every opportunity to strike for good. Defend yourself against the enemy. Urgency in the Christian life. And then... Come, verses 18, second half to 20. Be filled with the Spirit. Sing to each other. Sing psalms and hymns and 
and spiritual songs. Let your heart be filled up with a melody to God. Let the the strain of that melody be thanksgiving to God for everything. The war is over. It's Thanksgiving Day. Your feet are up. There's a fire in the fireplace. The marshmallows are on the skewers. There's a game on the dining room table. It's over. Or is it? I called the sermon Urgency and Gratitude. Another way to say it would be vigilance for a people at war and thankfulness and restfulness for a people at peace. And even if we can't fully explain how to live this way, it may help just to know this is what we're called to and that the tension is there in the Scriptures. It may be that the Holy Spirit will give the grace to thrive on this paradox. So what I'd like to do is unfold it for you in the minutes we have left. And the way I want to do it is to point out three sub-paradoxes, you might call them, or three expressions of this paradox of urgency and gratitude that I see right here in our text. Number one, there is a paradox or a tension between the days being evil in verse 15 and giving thanks for everything in verse 19 or verse 20. It says in verse uh, 16, I guess it is, make the most of the time because the days are evil. And then verse 20 says, always and for everything, giving thanks. Now, Paul is not naive. He says the days are evil. In Galatians 1.4, he said, Christ gave himself for us to deliver us from this present evil age. Why is the age evil? Why are the days evil in which we live? Three reasons. One, the days are evil because God gives Satan enough leash so that he can be called the God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4.4 Second, the age is evil because God does not restrain fully the pride and rebellion and river of wickedness that flows from the human heart. And third, the days are evil because there are natural calamities and tragedies that crash down on good people and evil people together and make life miserable. He is not naive. He had experienced all of this firsthand. He's not an armchair analyst of an evil world either. He knew his own sin. He struggled with it in Romans 7, right for us to see. He knew the sins of others and he could show you the stripes on his back where he was beaten with rods five times, where he was stoned, 
where he was held in in uh, prisons with chains, nights and days adrift at sea after shipwreck, danger in the country, danger in the cities, danger from his enemies, danger from his own people. He never knew when the Jews would hire some mercenary to thrust a dagger into him some night to get rid of him because he's a troublemaker. He lived in constant danger and in constant suffering on top of all of the external threats to his life that would make any one of us just pack up and go to the sunbelt. He was sick most of the time. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, he had this, this thorn in his flesh. Now, it hurts to have a thorn in the flesh. You move, it gets you. Maybe it was arthritis. Maybe it was a chronic eye ailment. Maybe it was chronic ulcers. We don't know. It's good that we don't know. And all of us can say it was my ailment. And he prayed, take it away, God. Take it away, God. Take it away, God. And three times God said, no, no. No. And then God gave him a little, a little sustaining explanation. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is going to be made perfect in your weakness. And he found he had the grace to say, I will all the more gladly exalt then in my weaknesses. For then am I strong. When I'm weak, then is the power of Christ made perfect. And so when he comes to verse 20 here and speaks this unspeakable sentence, in evil days, be thankful always for everything. He is not in a dream world where there's only holiness Only health, only easiness. He knows what he's talking about. And he only tells us to do what he has learned by the grace of God to do. Let's be careful here, however. It doesn't say dance around the coffin. It doesn't say... You can't cry if you have cancer or she has cancer. It doesn't say there's no place for anger against injustice. It says be thankful for everything in evil days. There's a young man sitting down here in the second service who just wept through the service. Then he came up to me at the door afterwards and he said, uh, my wife was killed in a car accident two months ago. I have two little ones at home, a visitor. And I want to thank you for the message. It was like a left hook. I had forgotten to use that paragraph. But he had heard that paragraph and I thank God so much. And I'll bet there's some here who feel this message as a left hook. 
It may puzzle us. It may provoke us that Paul would say, give thanks for everything. But let's not be cynical. Let's not become rebellious at this point. Let's be like Mary. When the angel came to Mary and said that she was going to get pregnant without a husband, she didn't balk at the shame that would come. She simply said, meekly and humbly, how can this be? And Gabriel was willing to give her, just like Christ gave Paul, a little measure of an explanation to help her cope. Namely, the Holy Ghost will overshadow you. The power of the Most High will come upon you. Nothing will be too hard for God. And so the days are evil and the word of God stands. And I commend you to seek his enablement to fulfill his admonition to be thankful for everything. Second, the second expression of this paradox is what I would call the tension between analysis and exaltation. The tension between analysis with your mind and exaltation with your heart. Let me show you what I mean from the text. It says in verse 15, look carefully how you walk. And then it says in verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, I take those two sentences together and I hear, look carefully, watch out for your enemy, know your enemy, know your commander, know yourself, use your mind, dissect the situation, apply your God-given mental faculties to analyze, to sort out, to examine, to seek relationships and patterns, to draw conclusions. Think, think, think. Powers of analysis to the word of God, the providences of God, the situation in which you live. And then comes verse 19, where it says that we should be full of of exaltation. Make a melody to the Lord in your heart. In other words, emotions and not just Thought must be involved in this transaction with God called worship and obedience. We mustn't just scrutinize the providences of God. We must be led into exaltation by them. We mustn't just analyze this book and pick it apart and categorize and theorize. We must be swept into song by this book if we would obey these verses. There it is. Analysis and exaltation. It's a burdensome tension with which we live. And the reason it is, is because the two don't fit easily together. This is why parents begin to become anxious 
about sending their kids off to college or seminary or graduate school. It's not just because they might have an unbelieving teacher or have to grapple with secular ideas. It's that the exultation, the joy, the gratitude is so easily swallowed up in the analytic demands of the academic enterprise. It's not because they're evil. It's just the name of the game. It's just the nature of the animal. Hard, head-breaking analysis, whether it's in the scriptures or in the laboratory, does not easily coincide with hands lifted and hearts raised in exultation. They don't fit together easily. And this is the reason why some of us are not carried away with enthusiasm about much so-called charismatic renewal. Because, you see, on the other side of the coin, there are people whose mental efforts and whose rigor of thought and whose doctrinal precision is swallowed up in the emotional demands of ecstatic worship. The pressure is put upon them to perform emotionally to such an extent that they know thought militates against hand-raised soaring of the emotions. And so it is minimized in many churches. Thought, doctrine. Where do you turn? Well, we've turned to Bethlehem and we are trying to be whole. And I commend to you wholeness. Give yourself to analysis. Give yourself to emotion. If you are a cerebral person this morning, don't brag about being an intellect. Cool, in control. It's a weakness. It's not a strength. Pray and nurture your heart's capacities for joy in God. And if you're an emotional person this morning, don't brag about it as though you're the sensitive and intuitive type. It's a weakness to be all emotion, not a strength. Nurture your mind's capacity to think clearly and straight about biblical truth and about the world. Let's keep it together. Let's try. Let's help one another keep it together at Bethlehem. Well, that leaves one last way of describing the paradox, and it's this. There is a tension in our lives between being a vigilant people at war and being a restful people at peace. Let me show you where I get this. I see vigilance in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. I see it in verse 16. The days are evil, therefore be alert. Snatch up every opportunity for good. I see it in verse 17. Don't be foolish. Apply your mind. Think through the will of what the will of the Lord is. Don't let your mind become clouded with alcohol. Vigilance in how we live the Christian life. But then again, you get to verse 19 and what amazes me most in verse 19 
is not so much that we are called to be a singing people, which we are, but that we are called to have singing hearts where nobody can hear and nobody can see but God. Now, I I can imagine a little cluster of Christians behind the Iron Curtain, perhaps, surrounded by enemies who are closing in because they've disobeyed the curfew or the prohibition of worship. And the enemies are coming in and the soldiers have bayonets. And the little group of believers can see through the windows that they're coming. And the commander of the company, the company commander, uh, Dean Palermo, stands up. And the, and the sergeant sits down, preacher, and he begins to lead the, the people in song. And they sing one worship song after the other while the enemy closes in. I can imagine that. What's harder for me to imagine is that while these people look out the window and see these stone-faced soldiers with their helmets and their bayonets closing in, that the song could be in their hearts. You can do anything with the lips you want to do. Only God can put a song in the heart where this text says it comes from. So that's the final paradox. Vigilance and carefulness in the way we live. And yet a heart that is restful, peaceful before God about the outcome of our walk. Careful, carefree, vigilant, and restful. Now, my last question is this. What's the glue that holds these paradoxes together? What's the glue that holds together the paradox of evil days and give thanks for everything? That holds together the paradox of rigorous analysis and a heart of exultation. The glue that holds together the people at war, vigilant and careful, and the people at peace, restful and carefree. And the answer of this text is the Holy Spirit and his work. It says in verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit and you will be granted the mystery of gratitude in all things. You will be granted by the Holy Spirit the mystery of exaltation in the midst of analysis. You will be granted by the Holy Spirit peace that passes understanding in the midst of vigilant conflict against evil in your life. It's the Holy Spirit. These are miracles I'm talking about. Nobody lives the Christian life alone. The Christian life is a miracle of God. It's a work of grace. And so we should pray for the fullness of the Holy Spirit this afternoon. And as we close this service, pray right now for the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that he would just pour his reality into you so that the confusion of how to live with evil and gratitude, analysis and exaltation, vigilance and restfulness would be solved, not perhaps intellectually first, but experientially first by the power of the Holy Spirit as He makes it happen before your very eyes. 
The way today fits together is this. This morning's message is analysis. Tonight's festival is exaltation. This is heavy this morning. It's required thought to try to see these things and hold on to them. Tonight, we're going to pick the fruit on the tree of analysis, and it is going to taste so good that we're going to blow the lid off of this dilapidated old building when we sing. I hope 150 of you come at 4 o'clock. The rest of you gather at 6. Let's stand and pray that the Lord would make it a great climax. Bring a friend. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, there are so many in this room who have grappled with tragedy. So many who have thorns on the stems of their roses. And I would just pray that the Holy Spirit would be sent down in all His fullness for each of us so that we would experience if not understand the mystery of gratitude for all things and exaltation in analysis and carefree living in vigilance. To you be the glory, God, for giving us these mysterious ways of life. And all the people said, Amen.